You're listening to Code Punk with Bill Ahern and Michael Zool, a podcast about the intersection between programming, technology, and the digital lifestyle. Hello, Michael. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. We got another good episode here, I think. Um, and in fact, we're only recording two episodes in this session. Uh, I know that in in the last recording session, we did three. We're doing two in this one because we actually, you and I are going to get together. We're going to experiment with some virtual reality a bit and see what we can do with that and with kind of the media we produce. So we figured we'll do, we'll do two quick recordings you know, in this session to keep our queue up, you know, so we have our backlog and then it might take us some time to experiment on this VR deal that we're doing. And I don't want to say too much about it. I'm kind of excited with doing the experimentation. We're going to figure some things out. We're going to screw some things up. We're going to yeah. to- totally bomb out on a few, but hopefully by the time we're done with doing these experiments, you know, we'll have something pretty cool for everybody to, uh, to listen to and to watch. Um, especially while they're stuck at home. But with this um, particular episode we're going to talk about here, you know, we did one a while ago where we kind of pulled from an article and we mostly just discussed that article. And we're going to do the same thing here. And this is actually about Gerald Haas or Haas or however you want to pronounce it, H-A-A-S. And this comes from a Wired Magazine article. And I'm going to give credit where credit's due. So I'm going to scroll down to the bottom of my notes. And uh, this was written by Brendan I. Kerner, K-O. E-R and E-R. Um, excellent article. Does a, an extremely uh, good write-up of this entire situation. And I had, I don't remember hearing about this when it occurred, um, but man, if it doesn't have like a combination of, you know, computer programmer who everybody's attributing as a genius and Bitcoin and, you know, people wanting to make money and then there's some drugs involved and some seedy people and then he dies. So, yeah. so it's like, Jesus, you know, you, all those things seem to be related in some way, shape or form. This might make for a good episode because again, I hadn't initially heard of it. Had you heard of it before this? I remember, um, reading a snippet about it and, um, it was confusing to me. Like I, yes, I heard of it, um, but I didn't remember even the guy's name. So when when you uh, brought this up as a, a subject to discuss on the show, I didn't. Even, I'm like, oh, Gerald Haas. I thought maybe it was you know we're going to discuss like some accomplishment from some you know tech luminary. And then when as I read through it, it wasn't until I actually read through the story. I'm like, oh, I remember this. Yeah, yeah. And the the you know parts of it stand out obviously that we'll get into, but I don't. You know, I had to research it to really understand <laughs> the sort of twists and turns. Yeah, I mean, he did, so it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not uh, for his accomplishments, and and I mean, you know, so basically, you know, it was a crime scene. They found a, a headless skeleton slump, uh, slumped against a tree, um, and then as they went deeper into the forest, and you know, they're checking the crime scene. You know, they found his sneakers, they found his clothing. Um, you know, they, they, interestingly enough, they, they, they find his pants had a vine threaded through its belt loop, like as opposed to a belt. That um, was an interesting detail given that at that point he had been missing for what, seven weeks. Yeah. So, um, it, Which it is, is a enough good detail time. and it's a detail that they bring up kind of, it gets brought up in, in the investigation. Um, when they find his pants, it was, it was interesting. So like he had some cash, he had some subway rewards cards. So shout out to subway for giving, yeah. you, giving you them yoga. I mean, we used to eat there all the time right <laughs> you know, yeah, oh yeah go right outside the back yeah get it. look you can get a six inch for 495 or a foot long for five dollars god damn it yeah <laughs> what you are know, you trying to do to me subway 
I um God, Subway have really I, I haven't had it in a while, but they had really some of the best meatball sandwiches, man. Seriously, <laughs> um, there was a, another detail too in this beginning part, talking about um, that his clothes had been removed as if by scavengers. Yeah. But then they mentioned that they got you know the waterlogged you know dollar you know money, and I'm thinking, well, wait, scavengers like animals, like wild animals, would pull his clothes off because if they're scavengers. The first thing I would imagine if you're a human scavenger is you want money, mm-hmm. but there was money in his wallet. I just thought there was a, uh, not that I'm trying to in- inject some conspiratorial stuff. I just thought there was a kind of a weird, what does that mean detail? And there's another detail too. I'll mention it now, but we can get into it in a, in a second. Um, they also list among his um, th- items in his wallet next to the subway is um, erotic boutiques. Right, which Some, that goes naturally with the Subway sandwiches. So of course, yeah. you get a hoagie and then you go, I don't know, erotic boutique. What does that mean to you? What, when you hear erotic boutique, what, what comes to mind? I don't know. I'm thinking like maybe um, one of those video stores, like video slash bookstores where they sell videos, books, sex shops. But a lot of times those books have uh, or those stores have those peep shows embedded in them. Not that I'm speaking from experience or anything. Right. But, but yeah. Oh, I can. And they do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. You know what I mean? And I just thought that was an interesting, again, another interesting detail because we go on. He, he did, at the time he was missing, did have a girlfriend. So right. I just thought, that is correct. you know, I am married. And actually, I've never actually carried any kind of card to a, an erotic boutique to begin with. Cover your trainings. You know yeah. <laughs> right. Like, you Cover know, you didn't leave no paper trail. Come on now. <laughs> but seriously, like, I don't, it was a card. Again, it could be insignificant, right? Like, you can be in there. Some people just grab cards. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. But I just, that they pointed it out. And then I, I don't know. It was just, it was weird to me because um, I didn't understand why the story included that. Well, the other thing that was missing was his backpack. Um, right. And, and so the crucial. reason why they right, which was crucial because he was a computer programmer um, and he carried electronic equipment with him. And that backpack with that electronic equipment, which included, you know, um, external storage, hard drives, nowhere to be found. Um, so right away, a lot of people are thinking, OK, well, somebody killed him, dumped his body, stole his stuff. Right. And we probably should back up and maybe give the overview and especially why that backpack is significant. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like the way this author um, you know, he introduces the crime scene first um, and then he kind of goes back to talk about the history. And, and Haas actually was working for a startup um, called Tesser and it was in you know, Columbus, Ohio. And this was a blockchain company. And they were basically, um, and, and they, they get to this a little later in the article, actually, but this was a company that was just about to release its ICO, so his, its initial coin offering. And um, so they were doing it, they were selling it to insiders um, late spring, early summer. So they were, they were essentially supposed to be making money off of this. And uh, yeah, they were trying to raise, uh, I think, $30 million from it. So Hass is kind of a guy who is, again, We'll get to this. They call him a genius in the article, and I really think that a term like genius gets way overused when we talk about computer programmers. I think there are many successful uh, people who are not geniuses, and I think there are many genius computer programmers who naturally aren't successful. So I think we ought to be careful with that term. They use that term here, and they use that in relation to his work, not just all of his programming work, but now we know that he's he's working on blockchain technology. You know, he's trying to sell tokens for millions, and there was a ton of scams um, that you could read about online when it comes to initial coin offerings, so much so that they started to get cracked down upon. 
Um, and so right there, that kind of like that made me think, OK, well, his backpack was missing. He was, you know, in the midst of an ICO for this blockchain company. You know, somebody killed him to take all of his stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, in his backpack with the computers that he's writing all the code, he never backed any of it up. So everything that he had, for the most part, um, was basically all in that backpack. I and mean, how much of a genius does that make you then? Um, thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you. I mean, I'm not even a genius and I know that I need to back my stuff up. I understand like using biometric cards to store stuff and you can't access. And but I also recognize paranoia when I see it or read about it. Um and that can lead to making some bad decisions, no matter how smart you are. And I think that may take you a little bit out of the running for genius, uh, a little bit. I might be cynical, but yeah, let's like kind of pump the brakes on that one because. And that, by the way, I just kind of point out that that sticks out to me, and it really irks me that he didn't back it up. I mean, I, I have several projects that are meaningless, it's just fun projects for me. I back them up, right? Any code that I write. I don't want to ever lose it, even if it never gets you know to production for two people. You know, it's just and now I got I got code base that is, you know, I'm I I believe that I'm definitely going to become a millionaire <laughs> that is not going to live in just one spot. No, no way. No, no. And, 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 you know, I mean, again, we were, you know, so the, the people investigating this, of course, are naturally going to look into his work. They're going to, they're going to follow his, his finances. They're going to follow, follow the tokens, I think is the term that they used um, in the article. And of course, one of the first, they, they want to talk to two people initially. They want to talk to the co-founder of the company and they want to talk to his girlfriend, right? You know, you, naturally you're going to say, okay, well, who did he work for? Who was he, you know, sleeping with? You know, is it, is it, is it, is it a woman problem? Is it a, is it a money problem? Cause generally, I guess it usually comes down to those two things with people that you would label as a genius. Right. Um, so, so they, they interviewed the co-founder who had a completely different story than, um, than the girlfriend. And it was oddly enough, like the co-founder was like, yeah, come on, let's go talk. He said, meet me in a Kroger's parking lot. Like, like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, you don't want them to come to your house and you're not going to go to the office, but we'll meet in a Kroger's parking lot. And they said, he was, he was kind of paranoid and, uh, he was asking for police protection. So he was nervous that his co-founder was dead and he, he pointed, um, the finger to, um, the girlfriend initially. Uh, but one of the things that I think, um, is interesting is they talk a, a little bit about what it is that they were trying to do. So the core idea was to create a blockchain um, across obviously trusted networks. And it was supposed to, and, and they give the description, I don't know whether this is the um, author's fault or just the, the, you know, in the translation of, of the technology, but they give a description of what he's trying to do. And it just sounds like a blockchain, like there's nothing original about it. Um, they believe that they could use the blockchain and later we find out that they're they're putting this you know they have an initial coin offer instead of releasing their token essentially on the ethereum um uh, blockchain network um and uh you know they thought they could innovate higher education by simplifying transactions so the different credits between institutions and i've often you know, i work for an educational institution you've worked for an educational institution i've often thought about how blockchain could potentially help with like transcripts and financial aid or things like that um but they thought it was going to revolutionize it and so they wanted to use smart contracts which of course is an ethereum thing um and they believed that corporations would buy you know would agree to buy courses for students that they wish to recruit monitor academic progress so they were envisioning this idea where like a company would want to send you to school um and they would purchase your you know basically purchase your schooling but they would purchase a contract off of this company and then because it's a uh, 
know, it's a blockchain and you can't alter the transactions. You wouldn't be able to alter the, the great grade transcripts or any of the, um, any of the information that was being stored there that would be immediately accessible um, to your employer. So they had an idea. I don't know how well it was fleshed out. Um, and then Sylvia, uh, I forgot to mention the, um, the co-founder's name was, um, it was Sylvia. Do you remember what the last name was? Sylvia Evans, uh, Sylvia. Uh, yeah, I see a lot of Sylvia, like the, just a straight mention. I have to like scroll to find oh, the last Emmanuel name. Emmanuel Sylvia. Sorry. It's Emmanuel Sylvia. Okay. And, um, so, so he basically found, yeah, um, he actually was looking for a programmer to serve as a lead developer, um, and he had set up a meeting with a web developer, Etienne Fiere, um, like Guy Fiere, um, who he hoped to enlist to help build, you know, this this website. And uh, Fiere at the time was acquainted with um, Gerald Haas. They weren't together at the time, but they they kind of got together immediately after that. And Haas apparently was was pretty impressive. He was pretty good. He, he was able to you know solve a bunch of problems and pump out tricky code. He had no problem with you know sitting down and necessarily solving a problem. Um, and uh, you know again uh, they start got work on a, a blockchain. The, the contracts uh, were written in Solidity, which is the the language of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and apparently uh, Haas didn't know it at the time, but he picked it up in a couple of days. Um, <laughs> What I found was kind of funny is that um, so so uh, Sylvie and Haas they worked on Tesser in a friend's vape shop for, for hours, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I'm like that's a that's definitely a 2019 2020 way to to start your uh, start your company, um, but they did a lot of work on this, and uh, again Haas was very paranoid, so you know he he was talking about all types of uh, ways to to encrypt it and using biometric data rather than traditional passwords, um, and uh, so they came up with some innovations, and it sounded like they came up with some innovations, but again this all like disappeared up in smoke, right? Um, what was interesting was that they they got into the scene. Uh, because in Ohio, it was actually the first state to accept Bitcoin for tax payments. Right. Um, so everybody kind of thought, okay, well, this is a stepping stone you know, to a wider area. So Columbus, Ohio, this is going to be where the booming blockchain industry is. Um, what I found interesting, that we already talked that, that they were basically doing an ICO. Um, but, they, uh, but Sylvia had mentioned that um, originally they were talking about becoming filthy rich. Obviously, this is something that Haas had wanted to do since he had failed at most of his other companies. But at some point, he said, uh, Sylvia had told the investigators that him and Haas had a change of heart. They canceled the uh, initial coin offering for Tesser, um, and they were going to like distribute these uh, tokens freely. And I don't know how accurate that statement is because we don't have any validation of it, but it seemed like a complete you know, turnaround for Haas. That seemed like a red flag for me. Whenever somebody changes the story that was like maybe known from a person's intent and then they disappear and they're like oh you know we were talking about it and like he changed his mind i'm like mm, how do you qualify that you know what i mean that's just like it's just one of those things as i was reading like that seems suspicious yeah and and the other suspicious stuff is uh you know Sylvia basically tells the investigators that Hassett confided him that he was having problems with his girlfriend having problems with Pietri. 
I always want to say it the way Guy Fieri's name is. Guy Fieri. <laughs> I, was, the way, I was wondering where you're getting that the, accent the way from. Guy Fieri thinks his mm-hmm. name is pronounced, I guess. Um, you know, but but um, him and Fieri, well, her name at least. I mean, Etienne or Etienne or Etienne Fieri. I could I could see that Guy Fieri, not so much. I don't, yeah. I don't know. You know, and 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 I've tried his recipes. My wife has made some of his recipes. They always they always come out very poor. Like he's, I don't think they work too well. You know, Alton Brown, his recipes come out great. Guy Fieri, nah, not so much. But anyway, he's got nothing to do with this initial coin offering. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the quotes was, uh, he, you know, uh, Sylvia had mentioned that, or uh, Hass had mentioned to, to Sylvia that she, she wanted to, she, she basically wanted to keep him to herself, but she, she didn't want to be kept herself. So it sounded like she wanted a um, polyamorous relationship, but wanted him to be monogamous. Yeah, um, which seemed kind of, I mean, there was no other reference to that in there. Um, and, and then it was like, there's this imbalance hits my Libra energy to the core, bro. Um, the, the fact that somebody would hone in on that statement and then <laughs> report that to the detectives, I found to be kind of interesting. But it, it does it does kind of match up with some of Hass's personality. So it might have actually been something that he said. Could be. Now, here's the thing. Uh, my wife ha- uh is a has like a theater major. She so got a degree in theater, right? So when we watch movies or really anything, and um, and we're trying to like decipher what's going on in the story, you know, sometimes people tend to infer things or imbue certain um, events or like you know whatever. They'll, they'll f- try and fill in certain gaps. My wife always says, if it's not in the text, then it's not in the story. And that's kind of basically, I forget the term she used, but it's how you like decipher what you're reading, right? In plays, if somebody didn't, if you didn't explicitly say, for example, see someone die, then if it's not in the text, then you can't, you, you can't assume that they died. You just have to, you just reconcile the fact that you don't know what happened. Right. So, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because, um, I, I actually carry that forward with me in a lot of ways in life. Like if, if there's no explicit, like evidence of this thing, then all you're doing is provided it's conjecture. So we've got some text where clearly he's expressing that there's some disharmony in the relationship with Fieri, right? <laughs> so, um, so right there, you have some kind of indication that there's um, quantifiable proof that he's unhappy. And again, there's another example, and this is where it does get interesting, or at least interesting in terms of like, if you care about the story at all, which we obviously do because we're talking about it, it is interesting. Um, that is in the text. And I don't mean the text message, but I mean, literally it's, there is something that he wrote that you can point to and say, he is saying there's an issue and there's never a point that he comes back and says, ah, we're reconciled. We're good. So she says, oh no, we were in love. And you know, I don't know what that's all about. I don't, I don't think they actually get a quote from her. I don't know if she knows that he wrote that or whatever, but there is evidence that he's not happy. And she's saying he was just like the partner now who doesn't trust her saying, oh, you know, now he had a change of heart. So it's always interesting. You have people putting words in the mouth of someone who's no longer alive. And I find that to be extremely suspicious. Right. And one of the last things that Sylvia had said to the, to, to the investigators is that um, the last time he ran into him, um, Haas was was distraught and, and thought that Fieri's group or a group of people really uh, associated with her route to get him. And he had mentioned that he had to delete sensitive material off of his phone. Um, and that was like the last time that he had yeah, they, they, he was seen by Sylvia. Um, they went to go talk to her, of course. And to your point, she basically, you know, said that she was broken up about it and that, you know, they were very much in love. They were inseparable. What was odd? So they were introduced by a, a mutual friend 
And, and this is great. He was a 67-year-old auto mechanic who sold nutritional supplements on the side because that is exactly <laughs> where I would get my nutritional right. supplements from. <laughs> right. As you do. <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, so apparently um, this is where they bring up that both um, Haas and Fury had past drug problems. Um, so that that's never a good mix in a relationship to have two former addicts together. Um, and, uh, they both apparently gotten sober. Um, they were abusing opioids though at the time. Um, and, and so I, I don't know how they got like hooked up with this guy, but that was kind of part of their bonding with each other while being associated with Charles Schick Ford was that, um, you know, it was, it was over the recovering addiction. And they were polar opposites as far as the way that they, they looked. And she kind of presented a picture of them falling head over heels in love. Um, but ultimately, she tried to say that Haas became disillusioned with the startup. Um, felt like that they were just telling people what they wanted to hear, you know, or whatever what they wanted to hear about, you know, becoming millionaires. And um, so he started to cut back his involvement um, in it. And that kind of was why things started to break up company wise. So, you know, he, he basically went from, I want to be a millionaire to let's just give it away. And Sylvia, his business partner seemed to be okay with that. Fiori saying that, you know, they were lying to people in order to become millionaires and he was becoming uncomfortable with that. So we, you know, we know that something changed. There was some change of heart, but we don't really know the whole story. Right. And of course, we get to a part we were discussing this briefly earlier, where we find out that for the most part, um, we know that Hass was popping uh, smart drugs, uh, nootropics, uh, in particular phenobut, um, which was you know a Russian tranquilizer, basically meant to enhance cognition. And uh, I kind of wonder if he was getting that from his nutri- nutritional supplement dealer, who was also <laughs> a, who was also a car mechanic, which um, I would imagine he was, right. 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 And, uh, but also like what I highlighted was that, um, she said that he, uh, he was suffering from anxiety from some acute anxiety, which th- that can be a side effect of usage of the phenobut. So he's, even though he's using something that's supposed to be a nutritional supplement, it's supposed to be a smart drug. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be side effects. So here you have somebody right. who is an addict or at least, you know, was addicted in the past. And they say, you're never stopping being an addict who is now using a substance that does alter your brain chemistry and he's having side effects from it, um, yeah. and show, showing some erratic behavior. Uh, so then the detectives, they go and of course they talk to the, uh, you know, the auto mechanic slash nutritional supplement dealer. And uh, he had a story that apparently the detectives felt like this is our guy, right? Like, <laughs> like basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hass had lived with him for a time. Um, you know, Ford had invested a modest sum of money in Tesser. So here you have a guy who's his drug dealer who basically gave him some money to start on a, you know, start at this company where he went from we're going to be millionaires to let's just give it away. I mean, that's like, oh, wow. Okay. Now he has motive. Um, and, uh, he just told a, a rather strange and shady story, you know, about, um, the relationship between all of the players involved, um, how he took him for like his last ride before he had disappeared. And he, he, uh, you know, basically he'd stopped at this gas station to gas fill up and he went in to go pay for stuff. And he said that, Oh, well, you know, the credit card system was, it was delayed. So it took like 45 minutes for me to check out when I got out, you know, he had disappeared. And, uh, apparently 
He claims he went looking for him, but didn't really look uh, go looking for him. Or at least he didn't think he did. He never called Haas, so it's like, well, how can you say you, you know, you were you didn't? You, how can you say you went and looked for him? You didn't call him once. So like they 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 pretty much felt that they had their man here. Um, I don't know what was your impression of our good old nutritional supplement dealer. I you know I was reading that I thought um, it seemed to me. Hmm, how do I word it? I, I didn't get that. I mean, I, I got the impression they thought they had their guy, but to me, he just seemed like he doesn't ring as somebody who would, what would be his motive, right? Like, I don't get the, I, for me, I don't think that he was the ringer. Like I, if I'm using that term correctly, um, cause I don't understand what his motive would be. Like, obviously his partner might have a motive because if it's true that he wanted to be a millionaire and then all of a sudden wanted to start giving it away for free and you know you're the kind of person who's like malicious and motivated enough to be like, Hey, my uh, quote unquote genius wants to start giving us stuff away for free. And I was, you know, I already had plans for this money. One thing, or you had a, you know, a vindictive girlfriend who, you know what I mean? Like I, I just sort of felt like those two, the, the girlfriend and the, the business partner were such strong, weird, suspicious candidates that the, yeah. Okay. He's, it sounds kind of weird. Um, they got this other guy who like sells supplements out of a garage, right? <laughs> but I don't know. I didn't. I didn't get the impression that he. Nothing rang any bells with him for me. He had a lot of odd behaviors. The thing that kind of uh, piqued my interest was that um, he invested money in the company, and so if he invested money in a company, and then suddenly the company's not making any money, and if Hass had actually still owed him money, you know, from whatever dealings they were having on nutritional supplements you could see this as a you know you're going to give me whatever proprietary software you have in your bag um you now because again his bag was at the time missing um and then that could have been the motivation was i'm just going to kill him because he didn't give me my money and i'm going to take you know what he has of value which is the source code to this blockchain software um but it, what they what ended up after they went through it all, they they kind of found out that he's not the guy and he's just weird and and everything that he not that he's weird but like things that he said actually made sense. Like they they were able to go to the cell phone companies and trace his cell phone locations and found out that he did actually wander around to look for him and he didn't but he didn't call him and he said hey I didn't call him because I saw him take the battery out of his phone before he got out of my truck so I know he didn't I know he didn't have a phone in there. Um, so like it, it actually ended up. In theory, or at least as they were closing the investigation out, he ended up not being the guy that they um, were looking into. But how much in how much in Hass's uh, younger life did you get into in the article? Did you did you catch much of um, like his upbringing? No, but I did read the article by his mom. She didn't really talk. I mean, because um, the the mom his mom has a whole. I, I, you know what? I never even thought to check um, the name of the site. Uh, is forevermist.com. I didn't actually go to the root of the site. I just went, there's like forevermist.com slash Gerald C. Haas. The mom doesn't talk much about his childhood. I think she's just much more focused on what happened. Um, she, Oddly enough, she doesn't offer any details that are any better than the Wired article, honestly. She gets into some conspiratorial stuff that, you know, a lot of speculative stuff. You know, that basically comes from somebody who wasn't involved in with any of those players of the story. So I didn't really find a lot of value in her story. So I didn't really get much into his like the, you know, his backstory. 
Yeah, his his backstory was kind of interesting. For, for one, he he um, again he's he's roughly around the same age as us, so he grew up in the cyberpunk era. Had a preoccupation with early computers, um, uh, electronic music. Um, actually uh, appreciated hallucinogens and, and, and DMT in particular. So he was much closely aligned with like the Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna kind of left libertarian style, you know, computer generation. You know, very much like uh, you know. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth, you know, Electronic Link and a Whole Earth Catalog. Um, so it's, it was very much um, Burning Man style. Um, so his the, the things that he was into was very much not just cyberpunk, but the, the, the you know, the, the early hallucinogens and early right. chemicals. The counterculture around it. Right. 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 That, that counterculture movement. Um, but it, all. I just want to kind of point out that it was, um, and we talk about this a lot, um, but around that time, um, technology was seen as the next phase of psychedelics. Right. Right. Like, and you, and the turn, the, so we, the last episode we talked about Hackers the Movie, the name of the club they went to was called Cyberdelia. That term now has been kind of co opted to be like cybernetics and psychedelia or psychedelia, depending on how you like to pronounce it. So, there was a point where the computer counterculture was seen as like um, that next phase and all computer graphics were always very trippy. So for a period in time, um, computer counterculture, technology counterculture was seen as like that, like kind of like the 60s revisited with circuitry. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Hass, you know, he was a little on the odd side because he would actually go to rave parties dressed up in a three piece suit while wearing an Israeli gas mask. And he just did it because he liked to confuse the other party goers. Um, he had been. I can respect that. (laughs) (laughs) I would take a photo with that guy. Um, he, he had been known to be intelligent in his youth, but to squander almost every opportunity that he had. Um, and I don't know whether it was, uh, you know, just his personality type, but, um, you know, the Wired article talks to people from his youth and, and different people throughout his life. And one of the, um, one of his, his childhood friends had mentioned that he was, he was so good that, um, he was able to improve an open source encoder, open source video encoder, um, that it could, it could do in, in multi megabit or he, it could crunch multi megabit files in a matter of minutes rather than hours. And so he had the ability to do things, but he also was on opioids you know, hydrocodone, fentanyl, um, you know, this was in his early youth and he had been in and out of different dilapidated houses. There was a friend that at one point had found him living in a house that had like holes throughout it. And he would just like, look like he didn't shower in forever. And the friend had just started up like a web development company and he knew the house was pretty smart. So he invited house to come live with him. He cleaned him up, you know, he got him, you know, working for the company and he was good. Um, but you know, it was almost to the, to his behavior and his attitude was to a detriment of all of those around him. Yeah. Um, you, um, you, sorry. So you had made it, you made a point in your notes here. It says Haas had a knack for botching every good opportunity, no matter how straightforward an assignment was, he'd take the most convoluted approach possible to demonstrate his superior intellect. And when I read that, I was like, man. Don't we know some people like that? Yeah. I mean, here are programmers, right? <laughs> right. I, I had a conversation with a colleague the other day where we were talking about, you know, going into so going into a business meeting or going to a meeting with, with uh, other people at work and uh, you know, you have a, a, a business line in your company that's trying to solve a problem. And some people go in there wanting to be right. 
other people go in there wanting to solve a problem. And that's a huge difference because if you're oh, going yeah. in there to try to solve a problem, you're going to be wrong an awful lot, but you're going to work together. You're going to, you know, you're going to band together to help each other. And eventually you're going to figure out the right solution. If you go in there thinking that you're the smartest person in the room and acting like you're the smartest person in the room, and then just based on the information at one meeting, providing your absolute solution, which is the best solution possible, and you are right, nobody else can be, you know, possibly know anything better than you. You know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room, if nobody wants to hear what you have to say. And Haas seemed like that a lot of times he was the smartest person in the room. Um, but again, I, I need to because of some inferiority complex, I have to prove my superiority by doing something completely convoluted and, and to follow up on, on, you know, what you mentioned with the highlight, um, there was somebody who needed him to program something in an extremely simple language, but instead he decided I'm going to do it in C plus plus and then missed the deadline. And so sure yeah. what he did was great, but, and, and the quote actually was you ask him to walk a straight line, he'd find a way to insert algebra into it. So it's like, <laughs> and, and that, repeats itself so that repeats itself throughout his entire history all the way up into to tesser um and i'm trying to see uh one of the important notes here um is that after one of his recoveries um everything was going okay he was living i think on his I think he was living on his mom's land um because this is of course an app uh, appalachian country um and uh, he, he had some complaints that the trailer he was living on on that land, he was living out in like a like a RV trailer, um, didn't have heat, and you know he felt it was like a jail cell. So one night after Thanksgiving, he just ran off and went roaming for days. <laughs> you know, and, and so so that kind of points to okay, well, this that, wouldn't be the first time that he ran off then, right? And that to me, and I'm you know obviously I don't think I need to clarify it to our audience, but I'm not any thing remotely related to a, a psychotherapist or psychologist. But that to me, um, ostensibly just screams some sort of mental, emotional problem. That's not normal behavior. That's not the behavior of somebody who's well-balanced. And of course we know, right, we're, we're revealing the history of drug abuse, paranoia, continued drug abuse, because <clears throat> with the phenobut, phenobut, um, if you take too much, it has a euphoric effect. So mm -hmm. somebody who is taking drugs to chill out, to relax, but also looking for maybe some euphoria, some sort of artificial, you know, comfort, phenobut would also provide that, you know, mm -hmm. but again, my point is, you know, this is clearly not the mind of a stable person. Yeah. He actually later claimed that, um, it was a, a spiritual experience for him when he walked through the woods and that he could sense that there was a phantasmic deer alongside him as he hiked. Um, and he, he, he the animal told him how to walk in the world again. Um, so that's kind of like how much of those early psychedelics damaged his mind combined with, you know, clinical depression or any sort of other kind of chemical imbalance that he was having. He clearly was having some bad experiences. He clearly was having some noise in his head. Um, and, and so this actually is the apparent first instance of what later could potentially be a second instance that was much more deadly. Um, and so when we return to the actual investigation, you know, they did some background checking on Hass, on the different players involved, on our good friend, the nutritional supplement salesman. Um, and although there was a lot of oddities, everything kind of panned out. And eventually they did find um, his backpack. 
Um, but first, it's actually when they first I wanted to actually get to the, the to the autopsy. So the forensic anthropologist who went and looked at his bones, they basically found that he had a fracture um, up on his top left th- uh, femur. And of right. course, any femur injury is going to be incredibly hard to recover from. Um, so they basically looked at that and they said he was potentially either hit by a car, fell down a cliff, fell out of a tree, and he would have broke that. And he wouldn't have been able to get far after that. And if there was nobody there to, you know, to help him, um, he would have died. Right. And it probably bears repeating that the land that he was on was like a former, like it was like marshy kind of soft earth. Like he would have had to have fallen very far to land on that ground to break the femur, which is a very strong bone. It's the femur is the biggest bone in the body, right? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's certainly yeah. one that you don't want to break. Right. <laughs> right. And so, so, so when they did some additional investigation, they actually found there were some eyewitnesses about somebody rooting around in the woods. Um, they did find like where a tarp had been strung up to form a basic shelter. They saw that some there were some like, like fires that had been set to kind of cook food. And so, you know, as the detectives continue to, to search the land, eventually um, they, they uh, were able to, to head down a gorge where there was, you know, a lot of crappy water or whatever. Um and then um, they found broken branches, and on top of the pile of broken branches, there was a zipped-up black backpack. So, of course, like I mentioned earlier, they discovered the black pack, or the yeah, the backpack pack, the black backpack. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. I can't even pass children's nursery rhymes today. <laughs> um, and so, when they opened it up, of course, there was this computer. It was smashed. There was, you know, all of the other items that they thought that they would find but also other items like a bunch of lighters pepper spray electrical tape gloves a copy of the new testament which you know is interesting um three unwrapped magnum condoms i'm not exactly sure what he was planning on doing with there with that and an ear of unshucked corn as if he was trying to roast it um so clearly he was hoarding a few things he was on the land wait i hold on this is a detail i missed (laughs) so Three. So he's got some cards, some erotic boutique cards. He's got three unwrapped condoms and an unhusked or husked ear of corn. Yeah, it's very it, important it, here. It, it, it bore char marks from roasting. So okay, my, all my right. Some, so we don't have to go down the bad path then. <laughs> we, we don't need to let your imagination play on that. Um, so, so, I mean, then it gets into a little bit about his mental health and ultimately what they kind of speculate is uh, they think that he had tried to scale a tree that was near the ravine to maybe reach a deer stand and, and then fell out. And when he fell out, his backpack fell off of him, rolled down um, the gorge smashed on some rocks um and then obviously there was broken branches there which is why they felt that he fell out of that tree he probably broke his leg um that's where he broke his femur and he was able to kind of crawl his way um i think it was about a half a mile i want to say um but he was crawl his way pretty far before he ultimately sat himself up against a tree and died or or sat there for a while and then died and um and they said that the saddest part of the story is actually if he had went in a different direction, um, he could have actually made his way to the highway, which, you know, could have possibly saved his life. So there was some speculation as to whether or not he wanted to be saved. Um, but this was like this basically completely destroyed the company Tesser because 
even if they were able to get the hard drives out of his laptop, uh, you know, and they were salvageable because of his encryption, they would have never been able to get through the encryption. So ultimately, you know, the company had to fold. They could have tried to, to restart it, but the other founder, Manuel Sylvia, decided not to. Um, but in all, you know, they call it the strange life and mysterious death of Gerald Haas. I think is, is, this is the name of the article for, for Wired magazine, but it truly was strange and truly was mysterious. And although his death does kind of um, have a lot of question marks, it ultimately seems like he likely had mental issues potentially brought on by drug use and... Uh, when he escaped to live in the woods, he was ill-prepared and then injured himself. And that's how things ended for him. Right. And I, I want to point out, too, and that's a, that's tragic and unfortunate. And, you know, while I'm making jokes, I do want to point out that um, drug addiction, mental diseases and death, of course, these aren't funny things. OK, uh, I'm not making fun of that. I just want to be clear about that. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, we're rather, you know, adjacent to that. You know, to me, the. The story here is about this one person, very eccentric, troubled, you know, and um, I think that it's interesting to me that all of these things, you know, there was a business that went under. This other person, you know, had other goals. His you know, partner, Sylvia, um, kind of put a lot, invested a lot in a trust and faith into Haas and, you know, obviously and then had to fold the whole business because Haas never backed anything up. And, you know, it's interesting to me um Despite the tragedy, which it clearly is, you know, that there was I wondered, you know, if there was any conversation like, hey, man, can you back this stuff up? Or, you know, right. when you're running a company, you 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 want to recognize the bottlenecks and try to free those up. You know, in we, we see those as blockers. Right. We don't want something to block us from getting the job done. And it's just interesting to me that these things were never addressed, obviously. Yeah. And and I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, it could have just been a poorly run company. I, I will bring up that. I mean, you brought up earlier about his his mother kind of getting going down the conspiratorial um, path, but she obviously still has question marks. She's trying to get, you know, Twitter records subpoenaed. She's trying to get the the county to investigate more. But but I would I want to bring this up because this just brings us back to to one of the earlier uh, statements that we were making. Um, but four days before. Gerald Haas disappeared. There were three tweets that, um, that's the three oh, yeah. most recent tweets. One of them is ran out of FINA, but feel ambivalent about it. And I want to bring up, you know, we talked earlier. I mean, if he was still using FINA, but and he was abusing it and then he was ran out of it, he's going to have some withdrawal effects. There are side effects. I mean, using it, it can cause anxiety. It can cause depression. It can cause depersonalization. That's an important one in this situation. Yeah. Um, and it actually does have rebound effect. So where you, you, you know, uh, it just puts him to me. It's, it sounds like he's in a, and this was four days before he disappeared. So he, he has this episode where he's suddenly going through withdrawal. What sort of side effects is he feeling? And then he heads off into the woods and eventually he's got, you know, the new Testament. So much like earlier where he ran off into the woods and thought he had a spiritual experience with a phantasmic deer. Here he is running off into the woods again, trying to, trying to live a disconnected life with a copy of the new Testament. I mean, that's a pattern that seems to, despite all of the 
all of the, I don't want to say red herrings, but this, the, despite all of the different pathways we could have gone down or could have gone down with this particular story with all of the people involved, it really looks like it could be just a case of history repeating, repeating itself with one individual who is just too mixed up in altering his brain chemistry. Yeah. And I think for me, that's the conclusion is uh, that he just he just didn't take care of himself and he kind of caused his own unfortunate demise. I think, you know, with the mom and, I, you know, I've read this in other places, too. You know, sometimes it's harder to accept the reality. So you create another story. And this is kind of true for you know, a lot of people who are grieving. It's easier to kind of cope with the grief by by allowing some way to perpetuate that there was some other larger cause and then just accepting that he was troubled, he was a substance abuser, and those things culminated in a very unfortunate end where he made bad choices and passed on. Um, it's I think sometimes that's not enough closure, right? So we create this larger, grander story. And I think that's what's interesting about this whole write-up from Wired and then, of course, you know, from the mother's write-up on that one site where – we're looking at this very interesting story, but what's made interesting is this guy was on the cusp of perhaps a great, uh, you know, success, and then his eccentricities kind of led him down this dark path. And what could have been something really amazing and great just kind of fizzled because he couldn't handle something. Yeah, and again, we go back to the point that he was labeled a genius, um, and it seemed like he had significant skills in what he was doing and the things that he loved. But when, when you look at parts in the story where it talks about him not keeping up with, you know, a hygiene or living in a dilapidated house, I mean, there's more to that than just drug use. There is mental illness involved. I mean, there are people who, especially, um, you know, certain like obsessive compulsive personality disorder where you just become so completely obsessed with doing a certain thing the right way or doing a certain thing in a certain specific way to the detriment of all other things around you. Um, so I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about um, Gerald Haas and, and his mental health and, you know, abusing drugs and even to a certain extent um, abusing vitamins, you know, any sort of vitamin or nootropic or any, any sort of, I mean, sugar, you know, alters your I brain chemistry. People caffeine. can abuse, people can abuse right. cough medicine. Right. So there's you know? a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we don't know about the story, but it does seem like it's history repeating itself um, in this particular case. And of course this, the article is called, let me hover back over this cause I gave you the wrong title earlier. The, the, uh, the, the article is called the strange life and mysterious death of a virtuoso coder. So we get both genius and virtuoso in the same article. That's like a, that's like a double, um, <laughs> that's like a yeah. double shot. If you're playing, if you're playing a game at home um, and the author is uh, Brendan, I'm going to say his last name is Kaner, but it's uh, K O E R N E R. And it's Brendan Kaner um, on Twitter. Um, really good article. He did a great job. So go and read some of his other articles. He's got another one called The uh, The Skies Belong to Us Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Um, so that's all I have for this particular episode. I don't know if you have any last words. I do, actually. I got one more thing to, uh, to sort of send us off with, which is, you know, um, and it goes right back to your thing about the the genius coder, the ninja, the rock star, the wizard, you know, people who push themselves that hard, the 10x developer. Um, I'm very much against not just these labels, um, but the concept itself. Now, there are certainly I'm I would call myself a mediocre 
uh, software engineer. Um, I can figure stuff out given enough time, but sometimes it does take me time. Some things I'm good at, some things I struggle with, okay? I'm a normal human being, but I do apply myself. There are, I've met some people who are really smart, kind of like what we referenced before, that's why I pointed it out, where like some people go above and beyond just to prove how smart they are. That's great. And some people do it and they're fine, they move on. But you know, I honestly, and I, you know, even now, I know people who push themselves to the nth degree. They push themselves really hard. They love the accolades they get. But I can't help but feel like there's something underneath that's maybe dangerous, maybe not quite as you know dramatic as that, maybe just you know possibly harmful. People who push themselves like that, it's unhealthy. And I don't think that um, championing this concept of somebody who risks their health to be awesome, to be a ninja, um, I don't think that that's a healthy approach. I don't think it's a healthy attitude. And I really honestly think in the tech community, this is something that's rewarded and embraced, you know, to be the genius. I don't like, I don't like working with people like that um, because the 10X programmer, there's a lot of, you know, if you if you look deeper or look past the success stories or the the benefits you get from somebody like that, there's a lot of issues. You know, there's a lot of arrogance. There's a lot of ego. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, discordant uh, group issues, right? You, like when we kind of pointed out, you know, um, you go into a room and you want to be the smartest person in the room and the things that you do to establish that tend to be very alienating to the rest of like, say, a team. Um, so I just want to take this kind of talking about this person and he struggled clearly with issues. And sometimes I think people maybe just highlight the good stuff about that kind of personality and they ignore the bad stuff. And that bad stuff becomes a form of like spiritual debt, right? We have technical debt. We also have like a, a kind of spiritual debt. And I really sound, we need to look at that kind of stuff. I think to me that that's really important because um, it, it can it can cause issues, you know, for the person, right? The, the, they, they completely abandon self-care for success, for accolades. And in the end, they always have to pay the price for it. So I think that's something to be mindful of in this case. I agree. And, and on that note, um, you can go on to, I guess, probably Twitter. You'd be able to find it the easiest Twitter or um, just search the web for open source mental health. There is um, a nonprofit organization that is trying to work with uh, programmers, developers, people in technology who have mental health issues because neurodiversity is just as important as um, cultural diversity uh, in, in all fields, not just programming. Um, and that's all I have. So until next time. Talk to you guys later. Take care, everybody. That's it for this episode of Code Punk. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher, or listen to it on the web at codepunk.io. You can find Bill on Twitter at Norathustra and Michael on Twitter at Zool. 